Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. Today's episode is a part of our broader AIBS Diversity Heroes series, where we spotlight individuals who are working to increase diversity, equity, inclusion in the biological sciences. I'll include a link to the other items in that series in the show notes. Uh, but today's guest is Robbie Efrain Diaz, a PhD student in biochemistry and molecular biology at the University of California, San Francisco. We had a really great discussion, I think, about some of the systemic and historical shortcomings of science as a field and also the institutions within it. And we also talked about some of the ways that those problems may be addressed and improved in the future. Um, so with no further ado, let's go straight to the interview. Robbie, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, James. Okay, and we'll obviously be talking about a lot of DEI-related issues today. But before we get into that, um, I was just hoping you know we could get a little bit of a background established. And I was wondering, you know, when did you first know that you wanted to be a scientist? So I think that I first realized that science was something that was exciting and interesting for me was around high school. I was taking an intro to psychology course, and one of the chapters in the book was more about the biology of the brain and how neurotransmitters work and how when things go wrong in the body. Um, with neurotransmitters, either there's too much or too little of something, it can cause disease. And that to me really stood out as a fascinating uh, consequence of these really small molecules that was very different from all the rest of the material we were learning in the class. And so from there, I thought, oh, cool, maybe I don't want to be a psychologist. I maybe want to do neuroscience. And so around high school is where I started to figure out that science was maybe a career for me. And I'm wondering what kind of role mentorship might have played in your career, um, you know, either early on in those high school days or, you know, later as you uh, kind of continued your studies. Yeah, mentorship has been extremely instrumental for me to have gotten to where I am. I think about um, I'm currently writing up my thesis and so I'm starting to think through all the people I've met along the way and who I want to acknowledge for helping me get through my PhD, but also the people who brought me to uh, the doorsteps of UCSF. And I think about people from my undergrad uh, institution at the University of Miami who helped me get involved in research and they encouraged me to apply to present a poster at conferences or they encouraged me to apply for summer internships outside of my university. And every time someone took a chance or an interest in me continuing as a scientist, it led to a really influential and meaningful experience that then led to another one. And I kind of see the connections from Miami to Michigan, where I spent a summer, and then to San Francisco, where I spent another summer, and then came here for grad school. And so, um, yeah, mentorship has been uh, central to me thinking that I could be a scientist, and then also wanting to continue once I was here in grad school and once um, when things would get tough, I I would talk with people who had either gone through grad school here at UCSF or who had gone to grad school in general and just kind of ask them, what did you do in this situation? And so um, I've had a lot of really key mentors that have helped me through um, this journey so far. 
Okay, so it sounds like there were a lot of opportunities to kind of you know benefit from those who were further along in their own journeys than you were. Um, but I'm wondering if there were any opportunities within those programs that you've experienced, um, you know, to improve things, to you know, kind of have the programs work a little better, um, you know, for you or for other students as well. Yeah, so I think that for undergrad, what was um, what was interesting was, I guess, and I don't, I didn't have the language at the time, but I, like, looking back, I realized that this is what it was, is this idea that there had to be a scarcity of people who could engage in these opportunities. There wasn't an abundance of funding for students to do research and get paid hourly for it. And when you could get paid hourly, there was a cap on how many hours you could get paid. And so it was interesting like reflecting on the ways in which being able to participate in scholarship programs that meant learning how to read journal articles and reading books about famous scientists and being introduced to nomination-only summer fellowships um, was only accessible to about 10 to 12 of us every two years versus 30, 40, 50 students who might be interested in figuring out how do we get most of these people into a program somewhere so they can all thrive. And so um, I think the a huge um, issue, at least in my undergrad, was like the idea of scarcity. And I'm sure that some of it was practical or financial and some of it um, could have probably been navigated. And then at the graduate level, I'd say that... Um, something that I really have missed out on and I've tried to take my own, um, I've tried to find my own way towards filling these gaps has been my education in grad school has been very focused on the basic science side of things and the biology um, because that's what my degree is in. And I have found that there's so much more to science than just what you do in the lab in terms of the experiments, in terms of the questions you're trying to answer, but the like social, the social environments that science takes place in, both in terms of like the micro environment of your lab and then like the macro environment of what does it mean to be a scientist in a society with people who aren't scientists. And I wish that I had more access to courses that were focused on the history of science and science as a social endeavor and um, kind of bridging across the basic sciences with the social sciences and the humanities, because I think that that can help inform how people articulate questions and also how they think about the impact of the work that they do on different communities. Yeah, that, that's really fascinating. So it, is it kind of an issue where, you know, the world of science, as it were, um, is its own thing, and we often don't reverse the lens and look at that world of science, you know, as, as much as we necessarily could or perhaps should. Yeah, I think that people think that scientists exist in this bubble, and it's a utopic space where there are no issues, and everything's great and dandy, um, and look at all the awesome research that's coming out of that bubble, so how could it possibly be subject to the same social issues that the rest of the world is subject to and when you're on the inside you realize there this is no different than any other environment we have power structures we have um oppressive dynamics we have 
myopia when it comes to thinking about how does my research affect humans or does it affect humans at all? Um, and I think that the inability to see how what we do can have a cascading effect um, is worsened the further your research is removed from the clinic. So I think that people whose work is kind of at this interface of translational research, they they have to think more deeply about how does my research and my findings, what implications does that have on a patient in the clinic or on people who are affected by a disease or by a health disparity, um, whereas people who work at the more molecular level, maybe they're still studying something that's in a disease context, but because it's so far removed from ever affecting a patient, they don't think about that patient, even though it's, it is still logically within the same stream. That makes sense. And, and what kinds of things can be, you know, sort of missed in that, you know, with that sort of myopic view? I think what's often missed is, can be as, um, as simple as if we're thinking of, I guess for me, since I think about proteins a lot, thinking about if there are protein variants that occur in different um, racial groups, and I'm only studying variants that occur from one racial group or the variants that are most commonly studied and not interrogating where did these variants come from, I feel like that then can create a depth of knowledge in one group and a lack of knowledge and understanding in another. And then when it gets to the clinical stage, we see that, oh, the drugs are really effective in one group and not another. Um, but why would I think about where the proteins are coming from? I'm just thinking about these are the variants or these are the proteins I work on. Let me study them. And I think it can then just reinforce these um, existing disparities and issues that we see with uh, the way that drugs are designed and the way that people access um, drugs and healthcare. Okay, so it's a case in which you, know, you have somebody who's working in a lab very far removed from actual patient care, and the choices that they're making in that lab are then having these downstream effects that are affecting patients in a very negative way, you know, as you kind of go down the line from that moment. I'm wondering, you know, what kind of approaches would allow someone in that situation um, to, you know, have a better effect? How do we kind of ameliorate this sort of problem? What do we do to you know, eliminate those biases at that early stage so that, you know, we can ultimately have those better outcomes. I guess one way would be recognizing the areas in which we lack knowledge and expertise. And I think not just knowledge and expertise, but I guess like recognizing that there is like a whole aspect of science that we, we as basic scientists do not pay enough attention to. And it's equally valid to the it's or it's equally important to the work that we do um i think that until like basic scientists across the board say it's important for us to understand the history of science in north america um and how science has been used for good like creating vaccines in record times and has been used for bad like like human testing and other um and just other ways in which like science has really been weaponized. I think if scientists don't have an understanding of how powerful what they're doing is, they are not going to like combat these uh, oppressive and systemic um, 
ways of thinking. And so I think that the first thing is kind of recognizing we don't know everything and we, and what we don't know is something that's really important for us to um, spend the time learning about and not just, Oh, we don't know about the history of science, but it's okay. It's not that important to what we do. It's critical. I think to doing good science do you think that that lack of awareness, um, you know, as has existed thus far, presents a, a barrier to people from more diverse backgrounds to getting into science? Does it create an environment in which people feel less seen or, or less able to kind of jump in? A hundred percent. I think that when people who have been in the academy or who are represented in the academy don't know about the history of how science and medicine have been weaponized against uh, people of color, especially black and indigenous people, it makes it such that you don't, someone doesn't understand how, how painful the history of like learning about HeLa cells can be for someone or studying syphilis can be, or, um, the drugs that were used in for sterilizations of like people in Puerto, women in Puerto Rico and in, um, I think it was Guatemala um, or just like Central and South America as well. It's kind of like I could easily see someone making an offhand comment that they don't understand that that is linked to a really traumatic and oppressive moment in history or to an, like traumatic framework that makes someone who is from or has that same shared identity not feel welcome. And, you know, how do you think we're doing so far in that? You know, obviously there's been a greater emphasis placed on, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion in the past few years. Um, but is that translating, at least in your experience, to real successes? I think it depends on the space. Um, I've been in some spaces where I see the work being done. And while it's not maybe at a place where as soon as I walk in, I feel immediately welcome and a warm embrace, I also don't feel this like frigid air that makes me want to just turn around and walk right back out. And so I definitely have, I've been in rooms where I see, okay, people are trying, people are trying to figure out what are our shortcomings? What are things that we can do to improve our environment? How do we change the conversation from why are we doing this or this isn't important to what is the bare minimum that we can do? And then how do we create an environment where people feel comfortable to go above and beyond? And so I think that it's definitely changing. Um, and I think that also um, people in positions of power are starting to recognize that they can't keep pushing off diversity and equity and inclusion. Um, because it ultimately means that they're going to be losing out on a lot of um, talent. And while I don't necessarily agree with the motivation behind promoting DEI work being to recruit talent because of what it means for the institution, I do think that the top-down approach of telling people you need to value this is, is helping push things forward. Yeah, that's an interesting distinction between the more altruistic or, you know, ultimately self-interested reasons for supporting this kind of work. Um, what sorts of steps do you think institutions should take to, you know, foster, um, you know, more diverse and inclusive environments? Oh, there's so many. Um, I'm trying to think through some of like 
some of the immediate issues that we're seeing here at UCSF. Um, I think one of them that's especially salient for students in the Bay Area and other high cost of living cities like New York or Boston um, is making sure that students are paid at a living wage. Um, I think that it doesn't really matter how many students you admit from a marginalized background. Um, if there's not either socioeconomic diversity and or um, you're admitting people to your program and it's increasing the diversity, but those students are not capable of surviving comfortably in the environment um, that they're studying in. And so I think that one thing is paying them a living wage. Um, and I think tied with that is providing guaranteed affordable housing. I think that um, the Bay Area shows that even if we got a living wage, finding affordable housing um, can be extremely difficult. And just knowing that you don't have to worry about finding an apartment every year for five years would be really um, a huge step in the right direction. Um, I think some other things are kind of creating a more robust curriculum around social science analyses of academic basic science is huge. Um, I think that that would really help empower students and faculty to be able to recognize patterns that are happening now that have already played out in history and disrupt them. That makes sense. Does that, does that play into the, um, you know, the uncovering bias and discrimination in graduate admissions um, work that you did? I forget exactly like the origin of that project. I just remember probably like at the end of my second year, beginning of my third year, um, me and a fellow student, uh, Anna Lipkin, we were talking about how, how the graduate programs are so focused on recruitment and going to these conferences for marginalized scientists to recruit people. But then we, her and I, we never really understood how effective those efforts were and how many people are being recruited effectively to apply and then how many of those applicants are making it through the process. And so we went ahead and started to reach out to program directors and program managers and asked, could we get anonymous data from the past three, four years of admissions with this level of demographic information? And um, we've ended up partnering with the now um, former assistant um, dean of the graduate division, Liz Silva, um, and a sociology PhD student, Nick Jeff Nicholas, um, to work on that project and really examine what are the different factors that contribute to graduate admissions and um, that can reinforce bias. And so we Anna and I were really focused on doing data analysis and trying to look at um, the how different groups fare in this process. And we were going to conduct interviews with student leaders and students who participated in admissions to really ask them, what do you see as the issues and what work have you done as a student leader to try and rectify those problems? And how did it shake out? What kind of you know recommendations were born out of that? So there was an initial 
uh, report that's been released, and there's still a lot more work that needs to be done, including a like fully comprehensive analysis of the data. Um, but the initial report largely focused on how admissions committees review applications and pass people forward to the interview process and then from the interview process to extending an offer or rejecting the candidate. Um, and one of the main recommendations that came out of um, this review was to create standardized rubrics for evaluating candidates um, and standardized across graduate programs as opposed to each program having its own set of metrics um, and also making sure that what candidates are being evaluated on is actually being assessed in the essay questions. So we're going to ask a student about, or we're going to rate a student on their contributions to diversity and equity and inclusion work. We need to make sure that we ask that explicitly in an essay question. Otherwise, it's not, you're, you're trying to evaluate something that you're not asking someone to, to tell you about. Right. So it would be a case of, you know, you're, you're, you're looking for the answer, but you're not asking the question in a sense. Exactly. And I just had this conversation yesterday, actually, about even with rubrics being established, is it, does it matter if you have something on a rubric and you're evaluating people on it? If someone getting a score of zero in a category doesn't affect their likelihood of succeeding. So if you're evaluating DEI contributions and some students have a five out of five contribution, they're doing the most, they're, they're really going to change their environment wherever they end up. And then you have students who have contributed nothing, but those students who contribute nothing have just as much of a chance, if not more, of getting an interview offer than the student who has a five out of five in the DEI category, but maybe a three out of five in research. And so... I feel like rubrics are helpful, but also um, they have to actually reflect the values of the program and of what you're trying to enrich for in your incoming students. And if it doesn't, then it kind of feels it feels performative at best. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you could get in a case where you know you're you're not necessarily asking the right question, and then you're getting an answer that you're not paying attention to if you're not careful. Exactly. Okay, so we focused, um, you know, mainly on, you know, kind of higher education um, institutions, but I, I wanted to ask a little bit about, because AIBS is a scientific society, um, you know, the role of scientific societies in, you know, um, creating more, you know, idea um, environments. And I was thinking particularly of your work on increasing inclusion uh, at scientific conferences. I'm, you know, kind of curious about, you know, what that work looks like. And it, it, it was it was interesting to me because, you know, I, the, I keyed in on the idea of selecting locations in, you know, areas that are, um, you know, friendly to diverse communities. I mean, that, and that kind of idea. Sure. So in, I want to say 2018, um, I w was talking with some students of, who were visiting from other UCs uh, who were undergrads about attending the SACNAS conference. And they said, well, if you have access to scholarship funds um, through the program that you're in, you could attend the conference. And one of the students replied that they actually couldn't use the funds to attend the conference because California had a travel ban on certain states that have hostile legislation to LGBTQ plus people. 
And the conference that year was being hosted in Texas. And so the students, while they had research that they could present and a willingness to go, didn't have access to funding that would allow them to travel. And so that really, um, that really upset me because it just felt like it's closing the door on a really influential opportunity for a lot of people. And it motivated me to try and figure out a like creative solution to this issue. And I think that what's really tough about um, advocating for a scientific society of any scale, but especially of these larger scales, especially ones that are focused on marginalized scientists is telling them you shouldn't go to certain regions that actually are really in need of local access um, to these opportunities. And I think that um, I think it's just hard because to tell a society don't go to one of the largest states in the country where a lot of people could drive in very easily um, to the conference if you host it in Texas. It's a hard choice to to defend and some of the solutions I tried to come up with and I think this is a very some of them may be uninformed or not as practical um, just coming from the perspective of a student on the outside is hosting um, like local meetings that didn't necessarily require like the national that weren't at the national scale but hosting local meetings um, in those regions um, so that way people could still attend uh, focusing travel scholarships on students who are coming from states that are on a banned list. So if a scientific society says we're not traveling to these five states, more travel scholarships are funneled to students from those states to offset the fact that they will have to travel. Um, and also this one I think is kind of, I'd say maybe the most important and also the most difficult to implement is really scientific societies lobbying what power they have to help local um, communities enact change on the ground to change the environment. So one thing that we asked for from SACNAS was to help local SACNAS chapters in Texas and in other states engage with their legislature to combat some of these laws and to push back on this oppressive legislation. So that way Texas could become a state that they could host the conference in again, and that people from California could travel to and kind of trying to pair the financial power that a conference going to a city like San Antonio would have on that economy with how do we make sure that year round people who live in San Antonio have a safe environment and how can we support them? Not just for a week, but 52 weeks of the year. Yeah. I mean, that's, that, that just sounds like a, you know, kind of a, a tough nut to crack in some senses. I want to be, you know, kind of mindful of time and I'm just going to ask you a couple of questions that might be a little bit quicker ones, but I'm curious, you know, how do you see the future of uh, DEI emerging in your field? We've talked about some of the things we think should happen, but how do you actually see the trajectory going? I think that a lot more people are going to get involved and I think that it's going to, in some ways it's going to slow down for a bit because so many people are going to either voluntarily come into the space or 
kind of feel like they have to enter that space because of expectations, whether it's hiring committees expecting statements of contribution to DEI or social pressure. And I think that that crowding is going to slow down efforts as people either stand around uncertain of what can they do or are they the right person to push something forward and the people who are confident or are experts in a topic not necessarily having the power to push something forward and so i think it's there's gonna be a period of time where things kind of slow down as everything gets more crowded and it's going to take some time for people to arrange themselves in a order that allows for the experts to be leading in the front, the people who are not experts or don't have lived experience, but really want to be supportive to be in the second row. And then the people who are following along because it's expected of them to be in the third. But I think right now it's, it's a little chaotic, I'd say. It's so in, in some sense is a, a kind of a crowded space. Yeah. I, Cause it went from 2017, 2018, when I got to UCSF, um, not that many people and not that many faculty were actively talking about this, um, this idea of like equity. And when they did, it was very high level conceptual, or it was about increasing diversity, but not thinking about the other components that come with bringing marginalized people into a space. And now everyone has a diversity statement on their website. Everyone is doing a book club. Everyone is putting platitudes on their websites or in their Twitter bios. And in some ways, those those have now become signs of people to avoid. Because when someone is putting a platitude in their bio, it's like, okay, what does that translate to action? You have love is love in your Twitter bio. What advocacy do you do for LGBTQ plus people? How do you create a supportive environment in your lab, in your department? in your scientific societies. Oh, you don't? Okay, that's interesting because then it reveals that this is exactly that. It's a platitude. And so um, I think the same thing with these book clubs and with journal clubs and statements of diversity on your website is how does that translate into an actionable item? Because I started a book club in 2019 and we tried to pair it with all these like actionable outcomes. And then the pandemic really interrupted that. And then seeing post 2020, all the additional book clubs have come out, which is great that those conversations are happening, but there needs to be more than just, we read a book, we got to be a voyeur into someone's trauma and experience. um, And we're not really going to think about how do we, prevent or how do we reduce reduce that trauma or reduce the likelihood that that trauma exists in the spaces that we occupy and so it definitely has become a crowded space and i think that there's the people who march boldly forward not knowing what they're doing the people who are sheepish or hesitant to do anything because they don't want to make a misstep and then the people who know what to do and are like educated and skilled in doing it and are being held back or have to wade through this crowd of people who are just kind of blocking the way. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. It's sort of a, a sorting where you've, you know, you've got to sort out, you know, the performative element and, and get to the people who are actually doing real things in the real world. 
Um, I guess this this question may feed into that as well. Um, but if you had a, a piece of advice to give to your you know younger self, um, you know, say as you were entering grad school or even as an undergraduate um, and and navigating these issues, what 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 advice would you give yourself? Um, I would tell myself to to pace myself. I think that um, recognizing that these issues are are issues that have formed over like decades of time and they're not going to be resolved in one graduate student's career, no matter how dedicated that graduate student is to the cause. I think that that reminder of how long this has taken to form and how long it will take to break down would allow me to realize I don't need to be grinding myself into the ground for this because it's not going to be just me who helps make this change. And it's not going to be a five-year project. It's going to be a 10, 20, 40-year project with a lot more people and a lot more uh, dedicated time to those initiatives. So I think pacing is really um, important. And I think the other piece of advice I'd give to myself would be to, to recognize where you don't, you don't have the personal experience or the expertise and seek those people out sooner. Don't wait until someone says you don't, you can't talk on this or you haven't experienced this. And so it's not appropriate for you to be commenting. You should recognize your own, your own experiences and where you can't relate personally and seek out people who can relate to some issues that you can't and work together and really, um, collaborate to to make sure that like the work you do is truly and properly intersectional and accounts for everyone's different identity that makes sense and i i guess the last question then would be you know what's next for your work whether that be you know dei work or whether it be you know at the bench what what kinds of things are you working on right now so right now i am trying to wrap up um my thesis and data analysis and i've been applying for jobs that are largely focused on doing DEI work at the um, graduate level. So I've, I'm really interested in continuing to work on graduate admissions. I think that that is a very interesting place to uh, work at as a like trained like uh, PhD students because it's an opportunity for me to develop and utilize qualitative skills, whether that's through focus groups or interviews with students and faculty. And it also allows for me to use some coding skills I've developed in my PhD to do more data analysis and learn data visualization and really kind of bridge skills I've learned these past five years into a different type of data, but not completely abandoning um, Python or other coding languages I've learned over the years. It sounds like you'll be incredibly busy. Yeah, I, I don't really know how to take a break. It sounds like it. Well, we'll, we'll look forward to hearing more. Um, Robbie, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, James. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you and talk to you next time.